Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll talk about political leadership in a time of crisis. Our guest is David Gergen, professor of public service and the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Gergen has been an advisor to four presidents, that would be Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton, and his renowned career also includes being chief editor of U.S. News and World Report, a commentator on the PBS McNeil-Lara NewsHour, and a political analyst for CNN. But he has a special passion for working with rising generations of leaders, and in that regard, he has a new book coming out in the spring called Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. We'll get some insights from that book, and we'll also ask uh, David Gergen about the many challenges facing our current crop of leaders. Tori Gorman, our policy director, joins me for that conversation. David and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Bob. It's good to be here. It's good to be with Tori. Topic of discussion is uh, leadership and leadership challenges, political leadership challenges, uh, particularly in in times of crisis, and those just abound right now. I yep. mean, you couldn't you couldn't have a better uh, atmosphere uh, in that sense um, because you know we've. I look at the challenges that the people in Washington have right now. You've got the the, the lingering and, and deadly COVID crisis, and inflation is is cropped up to a, a time that you know people haven't seen in in decades and and don't know quite what to do about it, and. And uh, the Ukraine crisis. So you got a foreign policy crisis. And, you know, there are a lot of other things, too. Plus, there are the, the, the longer term, slow moving crises like climate change and what we worry about at the Concord Coalition, the uh, under uh, unsustainable fiscal issues. So I guess my my first question for you is, um, you know, supposing you were back in the White House and advising whoever was. President, how do you triage something like that? How do you, you tee up these issues? Very, very carefully. And I think the administration got off to a fast start. Biden administration is welcomed by a lot of Democrats. The first 100 days I thought were successful. I thought I, I was under the impression that this is this could be a team. There are a lot of professionals in the White House. People have served before. You know, Ron Klain, for example, the chief of staff, extremely well-informed, um, good public servant. Uh, I thought they had an lot, awful lot of um, success ahead of them. Uh, I've, I've since concluded that I, you know, everybody's asking sort of where did this go off the track? I sort of think that there were two things. Uh, one was that the, the White House, a White House can be, and this is any White House, can be very, very effective at handling one crisis and maybe even two. But when you've got four or five that are occurring simultaneously, it vastly overloads the system. And it's very, very hard. I, you know, it's like it's like a juggler. And FDR used to call himself the juggler. Um, and uh, and when you've got two or three, 
you can you can juggle. But when you get four or five, you drop a ball, then you drop another ball. It's, it's almost inevitable for starters. And I think what was least expected, um, and yet I think has had the most uh, telling effect upon the public, uh, was the handling of at the Afghan crisis. Uh, and the way that I, I think that the Biden has had his policies have been better than his execution. He's had trouble executing. Um, and the Afghan, Afghan situation is, I think, very emblematic of that. Uh, it just left, especially the military community, it left a very, very sour taste in people's mouths about how many people were left behind. You know, George Packer had a really interesting piece in the Atlantic here in the last few days. And he estimates now by one by one count that if you look at the number of um, interpreters and other allies of the United States who were left behind, as much as 90 percent of the people who have been trapped in Afghanistan, and it's a hellhole right now. And I think that for, from my point of view, there was a moral stain that came with that that's really, really hard to uh, eradicate. Um, and so he's he's doing his best. I think he's doing a good. I think he's doing a much better job of handling uh, Ukraine so far than he did with um, than he did with Afghanistan. But nonetheless, he's been in a hole ever since Afghanistan. It's really really hard to reverse those the numbers in the polls. And as you well know, Bob, from your long experience in Washington, as Tori knows from her experience in Washington, you know, thing it, it, the polls do have a big impact upon how much power you have. They, they send messages to your enemies as well as your friends about whether you have the leverage, the power to hurt them or help them. So it makes a big difference when you get when it's one thing to have 50 percent, 55 percent approval as Biden had at one time. It's another thing to have 40 percent, 38 percent, 39 as Biden has been visiting some of those those low numbers. And they, they, they just they just rob you of your your capacity to govern. One thing I wanted to just uh, follow up on there is how that applies to the domestic agenda as well, because, you know, he was off to a fast start. Uh, As you said, again, they had the big rescue plan and the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which was really quite an accomplishment. And but the the bigger final piece, the so-called Build Back Better Act uh, stalled got about one or two votes short. So uh, how uh, that's, you know, they're in the position now of trying to recalculate there, I guess, start over again. Um, how do you, how do you go about putting a legislative agenda back together again at a point like this? Well, I think it's very hard, and we we're seeing stories come out, you know, background stories now for the first time that are seeping out of the administration, uh, with Democrats calling for a, um, a reboot, a reset, calling on the president to appoint a new team. Uh, I think this is exactly the wrong time to do that sort of thing. To be thinking about that. If you're going to be thinking at all about it, you need to do it, I think, after the midterms and try to do the best you can getting through the next period. I, I'm of the school that believes that as, as, as objectionable as some of uh, what we saw by Manchin and Senator Manchin in particular, I, I have the sense, uh, Bob, that a lot of people may look back on the Democratic side and say, you know, Manchin was trying to do us a favor. Um, and there, there was much about what he was supporting that the Democratic Party of old, the Democratic Party of Warren Rudman and Paul Sangas and others in the Concord coalition, um, you know, they, they were much more centrist. And I think I, I don't think I don't think that group of people would have supported this plan robustly. I think the Democratic Party would have been far more splintered uh, about the plan. I agree. Tori? <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Um, I I guess as long as we're talking specifically about the Biden administration at this point in time, I'm wondering, uh, you know, given the the close uh, 
nature of the this 50-50 split in the Senate, do you feel like the Biden administration is sort of of uh, misjudged uh, yes. what they can accomplish and overpromised what they can accomplish? Yes, yes, I think there's. I think they're still. Uh, they still need to undershoot a little bit. Uh, David David Axelrod had an important piece, I think, in the New York Times in the last two or three days, um, as a big, strong Democrat, uh, but urging the, the uh, President Biden in his State of the Union address to, to to lower the rhetoric, to lower the to to, to bring more humility to the table, mm-hmm. um, to not claim everything is wonderful or we've done, we're changing the world. I th- I think there was a quality about it early on. Um, when the Biden people were suggesting that we, he was a new FDR. And I thought that that was an outside possibility of it, but the more you got into it, it just, it became apparent that rhetoric just did not fit the times. That rhetoric about, you know, we can change the world. It's just not where the Democratic Party is, and it's not where our politics are right now. So uh, it, um, I, th- I, think, I think they did misjudge the politics of it. Um, and, and they paid a fearful price for it. And you hope it's a lesson that the progressives absorb? <laughs> well, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the young progressives who are coming up and proposing uh, things and, uh, you know, the AOCs in the world. I, I I'm actually feel that it's healthy to have some AOCs in the, in the mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if you go back to the 60s, some of the people who were then regarded as radicals turned out to once be right. So I, I um, my general feeling is, we, we need a healthy debate and let, let the progressives have their say and see and see who, you know, whose arguments prevail. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think what's, what's wrong is when you start reading people out of the party, as Republicans are doing with Liz Cheney right now, for example. I think that's wrong to displace people or to throw them the hell out. Um, but I, I, I do think that... Um, that there's going to be a we're going to go to through two or three more steps now. I think between here and the midterms, there's probably it's certainly not the time to reboot everything. Right. Um, it is a time to choose two or three issues that you really care about and focus in on those. Take the rest of them basically, or send them out into the cabinet departments. They can do rope a dope. They can do whatever. While you try to get one or two big things done. Um, you know, get something on the price of, of gasoline, uh, you know, down, get, get people coming back to work, getting in sort of, you know, a lot of so many restaurants and everything are still in trouble. They're in deep trouble because they can't find the people to, to, to run these. Get those kind of problems solved. You know, there's talk there's maybe a new variant coming. Make sure that does not happen. You know, they're, they're just just focus in now on two or three things you can get done right. Try to get through the midterm. Try to achieve, keep your power. And come back. Otherwise, you're going to be facing. If you lose a house, and you know that's the conventional wisdom, the Democrats will lose the house. Um, but if you lose the house, I, it it really does affect Biden's capacity to govern. He'll have to govern in a very different way, mm-hmm. and he'll have to be more broad based and, and and reach out more. So coming back up to a broader uh, conversation about leadership, you know, sure. the, the, the perennial question is, and of course you've served with distinction. <laughs> Four presidents, and you've had a front row uh, seat for for some of the. the I, I'm, not, I'm not sure your presidents would share your perspective, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but you've had a front row seat for some amazing successes and some amazing failures, I would imagine. So, the question everyone always asks is: How are great leaders? Are they born or are they made? That's uh, very good. Very good question. I, I uh, and uh, I, I have a 
book coming out in early May that, that addresses that issue, as well as other questions about uh, leadership and how we're going to create a new, I hope, uh, a new generation of leaders who bring something more to the table and we can get a fresh start. We desperately need fresh leadership in Washington at this point. Um, yeah, but I, I look, I think that I think people people are born with, I think, some innate capacities that others don't have, like uh, Dwight Eisenhower. He, you know, we know where he learned how to lead was playing football in the high school and junior high school with teams, and people naturally rallied to him, and made him, and and they created a leader out of him. And what you find is that the great leaders are often born with some characteristics, but the truth of the matter is, to become a great leader, you have to be really, really good, and you've got to train yourself. It's like it's like this whole idea that, that is uh, in the. The press about how to how to create um, people who like Jim. Jim Collins does a lot of work on the, uh, on the idea of how do you take a, a group from good to great. He's got a, a book on that, which is quite good uh, about what it takes to go from good to great, leading a big organization. Uh, and what you find is that there's something called the ten thousand hour rule. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, mm-hmm. but there there is there is research from social scientists that finds if. If you spend a lot of time practicing on something, you can do, you can take a capacity at which you take it. You're already talented in one particular area, and then you apply yourself in a very disciplined way over ten thousand hours of time um, that you you can become go from good being very very good to being great at a particular element of, of leadership. Even in the music, uh, Mozart. His, his father was t- taught him a lot, and a lot of the early work looked like it was done by his father. But by he about 18, 19, because he put in all these hours, he had 10,000 hours well uh, done. By the time he reached 20, he was a marvelous um, composer. Same thing was true of the Beatles. You know, they, they went off to Germany and played the clubs there, the nightclubs there, and they rolled up thousands of times that they did it. Uh, and they became, then they became the Beatles, and they, you know, they disappeared for a while. And when they came out, it, magically, uh, ten thousand hours later, they were they were they were really good at it. So practice practice means something. It means a lot, and you got to you got to stay with it. You got to work at it. You've got to be willing to get knocked down, um, but you it, it requires the discipline, and patience, and a lot of other things, honor, courage, and a lot of the other kind of qualities we associate with leadership. But in today's world, in particular. It's really, really important that you have you put this time in early in your life. Your leadership does not start when you go take a job somewhere. So leadership starts from, from within when you're beginning your journey. And it, you've got to sort of get yourself anchored as a person before you can hope to guide and, and, and lead others. You know, I, 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 I work for Richard Nixon, my, my first president I worked for. And he was one of the brightest strategists I've ever met. I haven't seen his life since. And if that were all the word of Nixon, he would have been a good, fairly good president. But it wasn't. In fact, was he also had demons inside him that he had not learned how to conquer yet. Uh, and they brought him down. He was, he was a man who was self-destructed. And he had all this promise. But he brought out the worst qualities in himself and, and, and inevitably went down. Um, so it's a, it, it's, it's a fascinating subject to me at least, about how do people do become leaders. And one of the reasons I would argue we need this more than ever is because we're, we're going through a period when our leadership is, is, is getting too old, too far along. We, you know, I, with all due respect to the baby boom generation, 
and I have many friends, and I'm a you know pre I mean, I'm, I'm a pre preemie or uh, preemie uh, baby boomer. Um, but with all my respect to that, I think that, that the uh, baby boom population generation has been a disappointment. Um, they, they, when, when, the, when the World War II generation left office, we were the most powerful, respected nation and people since the days of ancient Rome. When the boomers are leaving office, we've got the United States is 14th and one, and one the education, 18th and another, 21st, somewhere else. You know, we've got our head in the sand too often. We're not foreseeing. We don't have the, we're not practicing foresight. We don't have a sense of strategy. Uh, we need a new generation of people who are as dedicated as a World War II because we are in an existential fight. Mm-hmm. I, you know, speaking as a, uh, as a boomer. Um, yes. I, Bob, it's all I'm, your not fault. Gonna, I'm, I'm not going to defend my generation. I, I agree with you. It's actually a source of, uh, Great distress. <laughs> that, yes, it is. Uh, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a boomer, and I just think we're part. But we haven't been. We've been too much part of the problem, and not enough a part of the solution. Because we're so, I don't know, it's so poisonous and everything else. We all know that. But the, yeah, the I got every. I mean, I just figure we we got everything. I mean, we 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 inherited a great situation. And exactly. We just really didn't uh, make too much of it, and and uh, and not to embarrass Tory, but the. As running the Concord Coalition, the people that I find that I get the most out of are the Gen Xers. <laughs> if, uh-huh. if you want something done, ask a Gen Xer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, have, they have been my best staff people in my 20 years of running the Concord oh, that's Coalition. That's really, really interesting. That's, that's, that's good to hear. I was, I was so reminded of what Margaret Thatcher once said, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. <laughs> well, I guess if you really want something done, ask a Gen X woman, Tori. Yeah, <laughs> All right. Um, Want to dive a little bit. We talk a, a little a lot about leadership and some of the attributes uh, uh, that make a good leader. Right, I wanted right. to talk about character for a second. And I'm sure. coming at this question from a mom to two teenagers and having to explain the world around them and, and raise yeah. two, two good kids. Is character still a criteria for leadership? And I asked this question and I don't want to name names, but, you know, no. you look from, you know, not just lawmakers, but church and local officials and military leaders and it seems like we are putting people in position of authority and we are looking to their leadership and they are deeply, deeply flawed individuals. Um, sometimes we don't know about it up front. Sometimes we do. <laughs> we know full well the, the yeah. person that we're putting in charge and we're still putting them in charge. So is character still a criteria for leadership? But yeah. wait, before you answer that, David, we're going oh, to have to take, we're, we're going to have to take our commercial break. Tori always asks a big question right before that. Uh, uh, but I know you've got a lot to say on that subject, so I, I want to uh, I want to get to it and give you the full time. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with David Gergen, past advisor to four U.S. presidents and now professor of public service at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are talking with David Gergen, past advisor to four U.S. presidents and now professor of public service at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. 
And Tori, when we left off before the break, you had a question for David. And so why don't you just sort of reiterate that? And because uh, I know he's got a lot to say on the subject. Sure. We were talking briefly about sort of the attributes that make a good leader. And I'd asked a question whether or not character is still a, a criteria for, for leadership. It's such a good question, Tori. And, and the, the answer is very affirmatively yes. Um, there A few years ago, uh, a man named Robert Wilson wrote a uh, he asked a variety of historians to write chapters on, on presidents, recent presidents, going back to FDR. And he had people like Doris Kearns Goodwin and others who wrote. And, and, the, and the title of the book was Character Above All, Character Above All, um, and making the argument that, that that's the most important quality uh, that a leader must have. Some people would disagree with that. Churchill felt that the, the most important attribute of a leader was courage, but they're very related, you know. Courage often turns out to be something done with moral purpose, um, and so I, th I think they are. I think they are related, and I do think that um, we ought to we ought to train our children to believe that you know to have heroes, to have people they can look up to, or they can have role models. If you think about how many people you want to have your your child you know exposed to these days, or just in the last few years, it's a small number. You know, it's people like John Lewis or. It's, or, you know, it, it's um, it, you, you can go through a list, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think people looked up to her. John Lewis, they obviously looked up to. A lot of folks looked up to John McCain and what he and how he suffered and, and was so brave about it getting through uh, as a POW. American, P, American POWs in Vietnam, they served the longest time in captivity of POWs in any war. And uh, he came back a changed man. The people who... Often the people with the most character are the ones who've had the, the worst adversity in life somewhere along the way. There's been a crucible moment that has transformed them or they've transformed themselves. Famously from Franklin Roosevelt, you know, who was sort of thought to be sort of um, light in his loafers, as, as a phrase go. But what was, he wasn't taken very seriously. Um, uh, he was he was sort of a playboy in some ways. Um, but when he had polio and it, you know, disrupted, totally disrupted his life. He, he tried for seven years to learn how to walk again. He never could do it, but he transformed himself. He wasn't transformed by the polio. He transformed himself after the polio came. So you find often that people um, of character are people who developed it uh, on their own. I would note uh, one more point, if you if you could indulge me. Um, Barbara Tuckman, who um, was a wonderful historian, um, and her, her daughter was head of the in, in Carnegie uh, Endowment for a long time, Jessica Tuckman. Um, very fine, very fine family. Barbara Tuckman uh, did a study of, of history um, and to figure, and, and, and toward the end of it, she went through and examined historically each great societies along the way, great, like the you know, the going back to Greece and Rome and coming forward. She looked at four or five different societies, the civilizations in effect, and asked the question, each one of them tried to train young people for governance. And she pointed out that in almost every case they failed. And what her conclusion was, the one thing you really should work on in trying to develop a new generation is their character. And that, that's something that ought to be very central to the conversation and to the decision making. That at the end of the day, you want people who have character in your office. And we will never rebuild trust in our government and in many different sectors 
unless we unless we restore trust. People, we we have lied so many times and misled people so many times um, that it's really very difficult. And now with social media, it's even harder. I think it's I think it's harder to govern. It's harder to lead mm-hmm. than you. In part, in significant part, because of social media, but that does not uh, that, that does not excuse the inexcusable, uh, the number of people who have, uh, I think, misled us um, and uh, have created these vast chasms. Now, and we're in, it, it's much much harder to deal with the problem if you're focused on in the Conquer Coalition. Uh, when and when, how do you get people to believe? They they've got to believe there's a serious problem by piling up all these debts over time. And until they believe that and believe the people who are talking to them, uh, they're not going to take serious action. It's like the, the, the no-vax people. You know, they, they just don't believe it, that, that it's a serious problem. They, they, they think government is trying to stick something down their, 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 their throats, and they're, they're, they're not going along with it. I think it's harder to get the deficits under control today than it was when the Concord Coalition was first you know, created back 30 years ago. Yeah, I think that that's uh, I can certainly vouch for that, that I I think it's true. And that that really you're almost answering uh, the question that I was going to ask, which is uh, whether in your long look at uh, at leadership, uh, how is the how is the nature of leadership changed? I mean, how is the task changed? It seems to me things might have been different. 30 or 40 years ago, whereas you look forward and there are things you mentioned, social media, it is a, you know, something we never had to deal with, say, at the beginning of the Concord Coalition. It didn't exist. Didn't exist until fairly recently. But so are the future leaders, do you think, I mean, are there, is, is there a different skill set that that they need to learn from what leaders, say, 20 years ago were? Yeah, it's a good, it's a very good, good point. And the answer to this, is, I, I think very strongly that leadership has evolved a great deal. The demands of leadership are quite different in many ways than, than they have been. Um, first and foremost, the world is changing so rapidly that it's, it's hard for people to know what's hitting us. Uh, I've just been reading a book that I, I came called Great Narrative for a Better Future. It's, it's by Klaus Schwab, who runs World Economic Forum in Davos. Um, and it's a serious look at what the what the world has been is now facing, uh, and it goes into, if I might add, you know, public financing and the debt crisis is building up. Um, but uh, there's just there's just no question that what we're facing is so much more serious for leaders, and we're coming into a climactic period when the choices we make, say, on the environment, are going to make a huge difference for our grandkids. You know, it, it, we're, we're either going to condemn them to having a, uh, an environment that's out of control and we hit one, not just one and a half, percent, 1.5 increase in, in, uh, in uh, uh, temperature levels, but we get up to two, two or three percent. And that's, that's going to be devastating if that happens. And if we don't choose to go the other path, and part of that is about being disciplined about our finances, if we don't choose to do that well, um, we're gonna we're gonna leave one hell of a mess if we but we have we have those small windows still left I think that if we really got serious about it and we had strong leadership effective leadership leadership people of character to lead this people we could look up to uh, and admire and we could take our children and say that you know you ought to listen to that with that woman or that man because they they're the, that, there's what you might like to be someday you know 
most people don't want their kids their kids going into politics now. You know, it's, they see it as a dirty place, and you get soiled, and you're inevitably around people who are on the make, and you've got all these lobbyists and everything. It's, it's really hard to create a sense of respect. You know, um, one, one measure. Today, like Trump, and we now, we now see it with Biden, and we've seen it before with, with uh, the last couple of presidents before that, their approval ratings were all down in the 40s, or low 40s. And it's really hard to get anything done when you're there. President Eisenhower was in office for eight years. And you know what his average approval rating was over eight years? 64%. Wow. 64%. And think how different that is. When Eisenhower went on television because he was so respected, a quarter to half the people in the country said he, he, he's Eisenhower. He's, he's obviously right, and he's telling us the truth. I mean, I went through, you know, eight years, and he had one – there was one big mistake he made when Francis Gary Powers was shot down as a pilot over the Soviet Union. And Eisenhower went out and proclaimed – you know, that he was uh, he was there on some sort of other mission and so forth. And they, 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 the Americans thought that Francis Gary Powers was dead. His plane was destroyed and everything like that. Actually, he was alive. They captured him. And they had him, kept him in captivity until Eisenhower spoke up and said, you know, we had nothing to do with this, et cetera, et cetera. And it turned out he was lying. And it was he almost resigned over it because he thought he'd lost the trust of the public. He already lost the trust of the American people. And it was it was too serious for him. And uh, he came back. But he, but he he knew it gave the Soviets some leverage, and he was very unhappy about that too. Um, Bob, do I have time to ask one more quick question? Yes, you do. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, in in your book, your forthcoming book, Hearts Touched by Fire, you talk about uh, passing the torch of leadership from yes. baby boomers to your millennials and your Gen Zers. But right now, Gen Xers are the ones that are moving into leadership positions. Are there any Generation X uh, 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 leaders that are on your radar screen as people uh, that we should be looking at, that, that, that good examples for our youth and our, our millennials and our Gen Zers as they move into leadership positions? Well, I, I think there are more in other other generations. I, I'm, I'm actually such a big fan of the World War II generation. That is one that takes it away from all, everybody of today. But if you look at that, that generation, they were so shaped by, by the war. They had to show so much courage and character to get through the war. Um, but we had seven presidents in a row, starting with, um, uh, starting with John Kennedy, seven presidents in a row who all wore a military uniform. They all served in the war in one capacity or another. Uh, John F. Kennedy had a, a replica of the P, of the uh, PT boat that he was he was a skipper of. That the, had the Japanese came to sort of split, split it in two, and, and Kennedy had to swim three miles holding his, his, his seaman to, and, and to one of his men who was, was going to die otherwise to get him to shore. And so he had a copy of that Avenger aircraft in that memory. And then along came the seventh of those presidents, with George H. W. Bush, and he had a replica of the plane that he had been flying, fighter plane that he'd been flying. He'd been shot down over the Pacific. He was like 18, 19 years old, one of the youngest pilots shot down. He too was heroic. He, nobody thought he'd live through what he went through, but he did. And those people, because they, Tor, because they, they, they saluted under the same flag. They didn't have these differences over, are you Italian or are you over this or are you that or are you black or a person of color? 
they were they, because they fought on the same flag. They they became very democratic in their outlook. So it was it was a good thing that Assault and Saul from Massachusetts uh, was was saluting a Polish kid from Brooklyn. You know that those kind of relationships were different. When they came home, as a result of that, they took off their military uniforms and they put on civilian clothes and said, "We're going to we're going to save. We've now saved the world from this catastrophe. Now we're going to save the country." And they and they devoted themselves to that. It was a terrific generation. They, they left us with so much that we could, um, yeah. That we were so strong, as I mentioned earlier. We were this, we were the strongest nation since the days of ancient Rome in our economic power, our military power, our cultural power. And now, and now we've let that fritter away. But you're, it's, sto- you're you're stoking my baby boomer guilt again, but this, yeah. this, it is it is no. I, I'm very. But I wanted very, to. I, well, we're going to ha- continue that uh, conversation uh, right after these short messages. We're going to be back to uh, facing the future, and at that time, we'll be joined by uh, Phil Smith, the Concord Coalition National Field Director. Uh, Troy, thank you for joining the program, and stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition National Field Director Phil Smith and I are talking to David Gergen, professor at Harvard Kennedy School of Government and uh, an advisor to four former U.S. presidents. Uh, Phil, uh, you want to jump right in? Thank you, Bob. Professor Gergen, thank you so much for being with us today. I have a question uh, that relates to the, the need for public education and, and to address our deficit of public trust. Uh, Americans really don't trust the government to tax and spend wisely, but for some reason, our politicians get away with an even worse, more expensive option, uh, and that is borrow and spend. And by yeah. going that route, it tends to postpone some crucial moments where we could learn and reassess and change to a sustainable course. Uh, for example, up until a few months ago, a large swath of, Amer- a large swath of Americans had never really even experienced the ugliness of inflation. Uh, and inflation is is but one hardship we'll have to face if we don't fix things. So therefore, to engage with the public, you know, we had this federal budget exercise that we use where people can role play as a member of Congress and they actually assemble a 10-year federal budget plan. And we're taking it to 30 college campuses uh, across the country to commemorate our, our 30th anniversary year. So my question is, do you concur that, that public engagement and collaboration is vital in terms of, of getting to a place where we think in terms of a shared future. Yeah, listen, well, just in, we've, we've been talking here a lot, Phil, about leadership and the preparation of leaders. And I've argued that being adaptive is really important now if you're a leadership. You've got to, the world is changing so fast, you've got to be able to respond to it in a, in a very fast way. Um, and, uh, but, but I also think that we used to have a, a great man theory about leadership, uh, and that is, it's just one individual, the man on the white horse, and everything gets accomplished when you have this one man. And we, we now know that that is important as individuals are, and their character is important. Um, we understand that if you really want to get things done, you need to do it with through collaboration with others. You need to have a constructive collaboration in which you're working with people who are not like you, who don't look like you, who may who may have different accents than what you have, but you're trying to, to reach them and understand them and have them understand you. And that requires a lot of listening. It requires patience. And it requires a lot of trust. 
Um, and it's, it is, um, it's something we don't, we don't have enough of any of those qualities right now. I'm, I'm afraid, um, in our schools, you know, what we're going through with these, these racial questions in schools now and what, what should be taught in K-12, uh, these are really hard issues. And I, I think that for, for we're going to lose a lot of teachers um, if we're not careful. I'm, I'm told right now that one, because there's so much exhaustion and burnout and, and teachers and, and principals and superintendents have been under fire so much in some communities um, on critical race theory, for example, um, that it... Uh, that it's been very, very hard on, on the teacher corps. Once I'm told that one third of the positions of superintendent in our public schools are now vacant. Wow. I, I, I had not known that. And I was really quite shocked by it. Um, and it is, uh, I, I've seen this in schools of education. They're not attracting people there. A lot of young people are saying, I don't want to go through that. You know, they, they don't want to go through, you know, if we're trying to encourage people to get into the public arena, as, as I think most of us on this program believe, um, there, there, there's got to be, we, we've got to at least be trusted to deliver a, de- a decent experience. You know, you get, you get paid a decent amount of money, you're, you're treated with respect, you're not, people are not sending out your, outside your home with signs, and, and you know, which is what some teachers are going through right now. Um, they, they, we're, we're, in so many ways, when we know that we have these big crises, Bob started with the, the big crises we're facing. In so many ways, we're actually going backwards. You know, we, we haven't. I see, I see a growing number of really interesting, sparky, honest, brave people who are getting involved in our politics. Some coming from the left. I, I talked about AOC. Much as I disagree with their politics, I don't like people like that to be in the mix. Uh, but we also have the veterans who are coming back now from Afghanistan and, and Iraq who are taking off their uniforms, just like World War II veterans, and trying to get into the public arena running for office. I'm very involved in a group to try to get young veterans to go run for Congress. And uh, we, we now have 25 members of the House representatives in a caucus uh, uh, made up of veterans, uh, young veterans uh, from both sides of the aisle. And they sign a pledge to, to work across the aisle. Before they go in, it's, it's something I think would appeal a lot to, to you of what you work on and how you try to put together coalitions on, on, the, on, the, on the financial side. Uh, but I have seen people who do that. Some of these young veterans coming back, but that, that is what we need more of. We simply don't have enough people like that who are going to motivate the country and are going to make people feel like this is really important. It's really important to the future of your grandkids. You know, I think that is a silver lining um, of the generation that uh, the the post 9-11 generation that, you know, so many people went into the service and have been in the service. And it's it's, you know, whatever you think about what what's happened with the future in in Iraq and Afghanistan and in our involvement, we have had a new group of leaders emerging from that more. It's my impression. I don't have a headcount, but that there are more veterans in congress now for a time there was just like a real dearth yeah of it, veterans serving and this is this is a new source of of perhaps collaboration and, and hope absolutely uh, we I, I we haven't yet reached the point where i think we need to reach in terms of absolute numbers in the in the house that's in part because some people are retiring it's we do have new people being elected and they're and i think they fit the bill of being really uh uh, terrific young people, and uh, they're 
you know, the Adam Kinzinger of, of the world, Liz Cheney of the world, you know, are being very brave uh, against a lot of pressure. Um, but so I, 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 I have more, I'm, I'm, I consider myself a long term, a short term pessimist, but a long term optimist. I'm more hopeful about the future. I think when you look at if, if we, if we can convince enough people that we're in a serious place and we need to stop you know, yelling at each other and stop poisoning the well um, and take seriously these issues, um, we're going to be okay. But if we, if we continue to throw mud at each other uh, and try to, you know, if, if we make people who are our, used to be our rivals, make them our enemies, then we're, we're not going to make it out of here. I, I, I was quite struck, I might tell you, tell you Bob, knowing the history of the, the Concord Coalition and what you guys are trying to have been trying to do so valiantly. I, I told you about this book that I picked up called The Great Narrative, but I wanted to read just, if I might, if you don't want to delve sure. a little something on what they said about public indebtedness. They said, the last four decades have, have seen the largest, fastest, and most broad-based increase in total debt levels around the world. In 2021, we tripled to 350% of GDP with public debt alone reaching almost 100% of GDP. I remember when, you know, when, when Ken Rogoff and, and Carmen Reinhardt, these two economists were writing back in, uh, early in this century, that if you got your debt level up over 50, 60% of your GDP, you need to worry about it because it was beginning to be a problem. Historically, in America, we had one of the best debt levels coming out of World War II. Once we got things repaired, we were about 38, 39% of, of, of debt was about 38, 39% of GDP. That number has sailed past 100% now. And, it, and, and the day is coming when we're going to have to pay a price for that. Uh, and it's part of the, you know, that, that is the kind of thing. It's like climate. You have to get engaged and you have to take a look at the hard numbers and understand this is going to take all of us to get in here. And we owe it to the good generations coming to clean this mess up before we leave. Just to, uh, I, uh, because I, I thoroughly agree with that. And younger people, and, and Phil can chime in on this too, but it seems to me that younger people are very, very attuned to the longer term issue of climate yeah. change, which is yes. very similar to fiscal sustainability. Yeah. But not not quite so much uh, attuned to the fiscal sustainability issues. And I don't want to come across as being like some old fogey that says, you know, eat your spinach and and all like that and uh, be a creature for the 90s. So we need to update our message. But it seems to me that there is a hopeful um, element to hang on to there because younger people do look at the longer term when it comes to climate change. And it's a matter yes. of um, yep. looking at, 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 at convincing yep. them that there are, there are a couple of other sustainability issues as well. Yeah, and there's absolutely no, no question about that. And, you know, Greta Thunberg, this young Swedish girl, and what she's accomplished is just one person. She was 15 years old when she started this thing. And she, she created the biggest mass marches in world history. Um, it, you know, uh, uh, she came here to speak at the UN. She refused to get in an airplane. She came out of a sailboat because she didn't use the gasoline. Well, this, we, we need people like that now who are making that argument about the general future we face. I mean, your program is all about facing the future. And we have to convince people this is what's coming at us. And what you're seeing with the storms and the fires and now all the rest of this, that's, this is only the beginning. Of what's coming at us if we don't wake up and deal with these underlying issues 
and deal with the pandemics of the world. And we we should, we should have said seen that uh, coming. I have a friend who's at the Harvard Business School, a faculty member there, wrote a book called Predictable Surprises. Predictable hmm. Surprises. His name is Max Bazerman, and I thought I thought it was a wonderful book because it really pointed out again and again, including uh, the, the the coronavirus. We there were people in, in upper echelons of science who knew what was coming, and they were they, people didn't pay attention. Other people didn't pay attention to them. You know, it was sort of like an ostrich in a sand situation. Thank you, David, and uh, thank you, Phil, and and yeah. Tori also. Um, yeah. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I will be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Yeah.